This is the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello again. Welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 76 uh, of the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Good to have your company as always. My name's Steve. With me are Mark and Richard, the three of us, poised as ever, like coiled springs waiting to embark on the next leg of our journey, our musical odyssey, which, as all you regular listeners will know, is to create and craft the ultimate hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. Yes, that's the idea. This kind of league table of excellence, uh, the best albums from this genre, from our golden age, which we have decreed is between 1970 and 1995. And we, what we do is we, we review. We review three albums per episode. We review them, we rate them track by track, and then we rank them, deposit them in said Hall of Fame, um, which you can discover all about at our website, www.entersadmen.co.uk. So that's it. That's what we do. Um, and this, as I say, is episode 76. We pick our albums based on a theme, a theme randomly selected by our uh, randomizer, which is the Tico Torres Tombola of Topics and Themes. Um, and this week's theme, well, it's not quite rewriting history, is it? But it's more uh, more kind of rethinking our past. We've tentatively called it You've Got Another Think Coming. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going back to an album or a band, but I think we've done albums that we have a different view on now than when we had when we first played it. Is that fair? Is that what we've done, Mark? It's it's how has the passage of time changed our view of three albums that we either liked or not back in the day? Yeah. So let's reveal the grand reveal. What albums have we chosen? Richard, do you want to go first? Tell us what you brought to the party. Yeah, I bought an album by Van Halen, the later Van Halen, when Sammy Hagar was with them. This was an album I wasn't interested by default because I just couldn't get on with Van Halen with Sammy Hagar in them. I loved Sammy Hagar. I love him to bits. Loved Van Halen. But somehow the two of them together never really properly got to me until it was Mark. Mark played me this album and I thought, "Mm, maybe I should give him another listen. And um, the album's Balance. It was actually their final (laughs) album with with Sammy Hagar. So I was very late to that that party. Since then, I bought it and uh, I've I've loved it. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Only because I'm in the same camp as you with the sort of Van Halen, Van Hagar bit. So... Um, anyway, yeah, Mark, where do you go? What are you, you, you going to play for us? So one of, uh, if, you've, if anyone who's listened to this podcast since the beginning will know that one of my favourite albums of all time is Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath. And the Dio version of Black Sabbath, which probably makes me a heathen or a heretic in the eyes of Black Sabbath fans, the two true purists. But, you know, things are what they are. The, that was my favourite Black Sabbath album. And I bought Mob Rules and I thought that wasn't quite as good. And then, well, then the world turned upside down. It went half ass crazy and Ian Gillen joined the band. <laughs> so I bought Born Again, thinking the world's greatest vocalist joins the world's heaviest metal band. This is going to be great. And I quickly came to the conclusion it wasn't. <laughs> and I was... I was in I was in very good company because I think pretty much most of the rest of the world, including Ian Gillen, didn't think it was very yeah. good either. But over the course of the the time that we've been doing this podcast, nearly two years now, I've listened to Born Again a couple of times or listened to bits of it a couple of times, looking at stuff to do in other episodes that we've done in the past. And actually, my view of it has changed. And I'll tell you how it's changed. I want to talk about it. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, put it this way, I'd be surprised if it hadn't changed. 
having enjoyed the company of uh, Mr. Gillen and, and Black Sabbath over the last week or two. So anyway, I'll, we'll have that conversation in a bit. Me, um, well, regular listeners will know, or those who listen to whichever episode it was way back in time, will know that I'm a massive Rats fan. And their first two albums were gargantuan, as I've extolled, I've, I've extolled their virtues many, many times before. Unfortunately, what followed was two pars of shite. So album five, therefore, was always going to be an interesting one. Um, and Detonator, album five by Rat, bought it, thought, yeah, okay, slapped it on and thought, which way is this going to go? Are we going to get out? Of the, are we going to get out of the cellar here? We're going to get reached for the sky. It was a tough play for a few years, if I'm honest. Lots of good, lots of bad, but I've warmed to it. I, I've, there were a couple of tracks on there that I would, I would take to my grave with. Any desert island, you know, put them on my headstone. The works and coming back to it. I've just realised actually that it's a lot better than, than I've remembered. I, I, I honestly think that. So, but I, w- what you two think? Well, you know, we'll we'll wait and find out. But I'm so pleased I've done it, um, and I stand by what I said about the previous two albums because they were awful. Detonator by Rat. That's the third album on um, episode 76. So let's have a little play of a few of the bits from these three albums. Then we'll come back and we'll talk about all three of them. So there you go. Another varied listening list for this episode. And as always, we do these album reviews in chronological order. A little bit of a spread this week. We're not all in one decade. Van Halen was 95. That goes last. Uh, Rats Detonator 1990. That goes second. And we start with 1983, the year that Born Again by Black Sabbath was recorded. Mark, We've been friends for a long time, haven't we? We've been friends for a long time and at various stages of our lives at the point, you know, in this Venn diagram where we've all intersected with each other, there have been times when we've gone to the pub and we've got a bit pissed and we've done some stupid stuff. So when Ian Gillen was invited to go for a drink with Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler, you would have been forgiven for thinking that was just a bit of a drink between three old stages from Heavy Metal's golden years. They were around at the same time. Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, slugging it out in the early 70s to become the godfathers of heavy metal. We've had that conversation back in episode three. Anyway, Ian Gillen turns up at, I think it's the Bear Inn in Oxford, where he meets 
Birmingham's finest, Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler. And things get a bit messy. In fact, they get very messy. So messy, in fact, that Gillen has to be poured into a taxi, which takes him home. And he wakes up the next morning with the phone ringing, and it's his agent on the phone. And his agent says, Ian, when you make significantly serious decisions about your career, I think it would be a good idea if you talk to me first. And Gillen goes, what the hell are you talking about? He had no recollection of the previous night. He's like, well, well done. I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, well, apparently you've just agreed to join Black Sabbath. So this was obviously a a state of affairs concocted by the three of them over a few pints. After the events, Geezer Butler says, how the hell does that work? Because he's now thinking what all the rest of us are thinking, going, hmm, can't really hear this working. But nevertheless, Gillen's just folded the Gillen band. Black Sabbath have just fired Ronnie James Dio. There is a vacancy in front of the microphone, and Ian Gillen steps into it. And the deal apparently was one year, one album, one tour, and we'll see where it goes from there. And the result of this is 1983's Born Again album. An album that, well, see, I interviewed Ian Gillen in about 89, 90 for for a newspaper that I was working on. And I asked him about this because he had always said that he heard the master tapes of Born Again as he was driving up the M4 and he was listening to it on a cassette. So he'd, he'd heard the kind of the early mixes of it and the... And he'd thrown them out of the the window. Apparently, they're still lying somewhere in the verge on the hard shoulder of the M4. Who knows? But he threw them out. He was so disgusted with the way that the album turned out that he couldn't bear to listen to it. Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler say that the band was touring in the the Far East when the album came out. They didn't actually hear it until it was released and realised it was a complete dog's breakfast from a production point of view. But anywho, um, the album comes out. um, And it it, it comes out... uh, on August the 7th, 1983, and this little hairy Grebo from Nebworth goes out and buys it. Opening album sleeve notes. It was recorded in May of 93, and the, I mean, to be honest with you, the story about how it was recorded is far more interesting than the album in many ways, but we'll come on to that. Uh, it released on Vertigo, at 41 minutes and four seconds long, produced by Black Sabbath and a guy called Robin Black at the Manor Studios in Oxfordshire owned by Richard Branson. And uh, Branson is complicit, in fact, in breaking his own windows as he runs around throwing stones through them with Ian Gillen uh, at some point. Um, So the previous album is Mob Rules with Ronnie James Dio, if you ignore the live evil album, which is ultimately the album that saw Dio shown the door because he kept sneaking back into the studio in the dead of night to, to make changes to the production. And the next one was Seventh Star. So this is the classic uh, Black Sabbath lineup of Bill Ward, who's brought back to do the drums for the album. Doesn't make it onto the tour. That's Bev Bevan, formerly of ELO, because Bill Ward is so stressed out by the recording experience that he goes back on the bottle, having been sober for um, a couple of years. Uh, Geezer Butler on bass and Tony Io me on lead guitar and obviously Ian Gillen on vocals and they are joined by Jeff Nichols on keyboards who we have already talked about uh, on a couple of albums Dio and YT in particular over the last few months this album reached number four in the UK stayed on the chart for seven weeks it went to 39 in America it says it's got nine tracks it's really only got seven because two of them are very very short but anyway the track listing uh, trashed Stonehenge an instrumental disturbing the priest 
The Dark, an instrumental of less than one minute, Zero the Hero. Um, and then Digital Bitch on side two, Born Again, Hotline and Keep It Warm. We'll talk about how these songs came into being because pretty much the album tells the story of what was going on at the time it was made. But I have really, really enjoyed this album. I think it is actually a really good album when you just ignore the fact that it's Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath stopped sounding like Black Sabbath when Ozzy Osbourne left in 79. So they hadn't sounded like Black Sabbath for four years when this comes out. So taken on its own merits, I think this is a great album. But what do you two think? Well, there are stories I read that the intention was that they weren't going to make a Black Sabbath album, that actually they, they had plans that it was going to be, you know, a, an Iomi Butler Ward Gillen project, that actually they were just interested in making music together. I mean, if your story is true, you know, to get an absolutely ratted in the pub, how will they actually remember that? Who knows? And, and, and that I kind of get that actually they thought, well, you've not got a band at the moment. We've not got a singer. Why don't we have a bit of fun? Because I, I was falling into that trap of this doesn't sound like Black Sabbath. And once I start to think about, okay, well, did they, did they have the opportunity to make some music just between the four of them? Yeah, I, there's some very interesting stuff on here. There's some stuff I'm not too bothered with, but there's, there's a, yeah, a few yeah, very good tracks. And it's, yeah, and I've got into it. It's t- it took a while, but I think towards the end, I was I was getting it. Um, yeah, enjoying it mostly. I, I can feel the waves of enthusiasm washing over me as you're yeah. speaking there. Um, you know, I just um, feel the love coming, just, just, just flowing off you, um, Steve. Talk, you? talk to me, baby. Just talk to me. I love this. I love this. I'm telling you. I've always sometimes you always think you're kind of out of touch with the world, the rest of the world. And I'm looking at all the reading all the reviews and that, and I'm and I'm thinking. I remember at school, I had, a, I had a real hot, soft spot for an American tennis player called Kathy Rinaldi, and no one else did. And I just thought, is it me? She's lovely. But anyway, so and I'm, and I'm at that stage again. This is my Kathy Rinaldi moment. And I'm thinking, why are all these reviews the way they are? I, I found this quite easy to assimilate because I've got no Sabbath baggage. I wasn't a Sabbath fan particularly. All these reviews saying, yeah, the worst Sabbath album ever. I've seen that. I'm sure you've seen that many, many times. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Mm. But what's it like as an album? Forget the Sabbath bit. What's it like as an album? And and I actually find it easy to distance this from Black Sabbath because of the man at the mic, who doesn't sound like the bloke from Black Sabbath. He sounds like the bloke from Ian Gillen band. And to that, and, you know what I mean? And to that end, I love it because th- th- this is as much a, a Gillen album as it is a Sabbath album, as far as I'm concerned. It's funny that G- even Gillen described it. What was that quite, he described himself as the worst singer Sabbath ever had. Yes. <laughs> because he wasn't a leather and antichrist kind of guy. You know, he wasn't Aussie and he wasn't Ronnie. But, but I, I just go back to what I say. Had you not known about Sabbath's past, had you not known about Gillen's past, had you just heard this album blind without knowing anything, surely you'd think it was great. Because I do. I, I just, the, the, yeah. the, the music on this yeah. is absolutely pounding. I just think it's brilliant. Really enjoyed it. I mean, what that fucking I... instrumental is about, I do not know. But... <laughs> But I quite like Stonehenge, but we'll get on to that. Um, but I think you've hit the nail on. I think you've hit the nail on the head because the guitars and the drums and the bass are all black sound. Mm. I mean, they are as heavy as fuck. yes, yeah, yeah. And then you've got, and then you've got Gillen. Not only his vocal linguistics, yeah, but uh, uh, sorry, his vocal gymnastics, but also his lyrical gymnastics. Yeah, um, you know, all of that tongue-in-cheek stuff to play on words. You know, the, um, uh, I mean, we've talked in the part, we talked before, didn't we, about um, about the way he, he kind of mashes up words, but they they absolutely sum up kind of the, the, the feeling that he's trying to 
get across. And he does this here. You know, yeah. uh, well, we'll come on to it, um, particularly in um, in Zero the Hero. But yeah, lyrically, this is nothing like Black Sabbath. Musically, it is. It's Black Sabbath all over. Mm. And that's probably why it splits opinion, I guess. I'm, I'm pleased you both liked it, or at least got on with it, because it was it was only going to go one or two ways. Really. <laughs> um, yeah. But should we get neutrality is not an option, is it? <laughs> but let's get on and listen to it, and we can we can talk through some of these things in uh, in a bit more depth. So the album kicks off with a track called Trashed, which is actually just a narrative of this crazy ass race that the band were having in the grounds uh, of, of the Manor Studios when Ian Gillen nicked Bill Ward's Ford Granada, brand new Ford Granada, and raced it around the racetrack. Before totaling it, he was absolutely leathered again. I mean, you know, he really was trashed. But this track is just, this is the track. It was on every tape, every compilation tape I had at the time. I've always loved this track. The riff is absolutely relentless. And and Geezer Butler's bass as well just goes right through you, doesn't it? It's a fantastic track. Fantastic opening. I didn't know it was a Ford Granada. I never knew that. Yeah. that adds to the story. If you showed a kid today a Ford Granada <laughs> and given some this kind of madman racing story, you just think, what, in that? Apparently they were all given brand new Ford Granadas as okay. part of the record deal. Okay, yeah, cool. Ah, uh, mate, this is the one. You know this is the one because you played it to me as... as um, the first track you played on this album. But you didn't need to go any further because I was hooked from the minute you played this um, to me first time. I just thought, that's rock. What a riff. What a riff. What's not to like about this? Well, the PMRC found something not to like about it, didn't they? But um, isn't it on their list? Yeah. I mean, what? What, drink driving, presumably? Or driving a Ford Granada? Don't know, one of them. Well, yeah. yeah, I presume it's the Granada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's the Granada. It's the, definitely the Granada. No one else could sing this, could they? At this this speed, this power, and this pitch. Crumsy <laughs> has got he's got a great big pair of lungs, hasn't he? The, the, these lines he's singing are so long. This goes off at 100 miles an hour. Don't think it's my favourite track on the album, but it's up there. But yeah, well, I mean, let's, let's be as honest. As well. It is the, the production on this and the whole album is fucking poor. It really is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, the one, the one, the, this track has lost marks because still to this day, the guitar solo hurts my ears. Not because it's <laughs> necessarily a bad solo, but the production on it is awful. <laughs> but ignoring the production, it is still a wicked guitar solo. It is. It is. So then I know we're not marking it, but we've got to talk about Stonehenge. We've got to talk about Stonehenge because. If you've watched Spinal Tap, then there is a part of Spinal Tap that is that owes itself 
to this album because they write this song, which is very atmospheric. I, I actually really like it. It's like Jean-Michel Jarre meets the devil in a car park somewhere, and this is the music they make together. So I absolutely love this as an instrumental. I think it's a great way of getting into the next track, which is called Disturbing the Priest. So as part of uh, the, the tour, the Black the Born Again tour, they commission what Geezer Butler said was he was asked, you know, what size do you want Stonehenge? Because they decided they'd have this kind of Stonehenge set. And, <laughs> and Geezer Butler goes, life size. It's <laughs> <laughs> so fucking huge. They can't get it into any venue on the oh, tour. So dude. they have to only use half of it. And half the size and half the actual thing. So it is so Spinal Tap that Spinal Tap just take it and reverse it. So Spinal Tap, it's tiny, absolutely tiny. It's only about a foot tall, isn't it? Whereas actually in real life, this thing was just monstrous. And they couldn't get it in even the biggest venues. They couldn't get it on the stage. Just fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. No, well, the, well the, the other thing is, I mean, it, it, it does it does actually sound like the the music that they're playing when Nigel Tufnell is doing his intro. What is yes. it? No yes. one knows where they came from. And, <laughs> and... But take away take away the spinal tap link, and I I love the way that heartbeat goes into. Uh... Disturbing yeah, the Priest, okay. which I starts know. off with a traditional trademark Ian Gillan scream, laugh, manic cackle. laugh. Um, <laughs> cackle. Yeah, cackle. And the, obviously, you know, the, the backstory to Disturbing the Priest is that they were recording this album in the early, in the sort of mid-spring when it was very warm. So they had all of the doors and windows open at um, the Manor Studios while they're kind of rehearsing and recording. So loud were they that they were disturbing services at the church up the road. So they're rehearsing one day or, or recording and this vicar turns up at the door asking them if they wouldn't please mind turning it down because... It was actually disturbing choir practice up the road. So, yeah, so this is disturbing the priest. Churchgoers took offence in in quite big numbers to the point where they were run out of town, I think, in Mexico um, because it was so sacrilegious. So, yeah, this is disturbing the priest. And this is, well, we're going to use the phrase heavy as fuck a lot because this is really, really heavy. I absolutely love Geezer Butler, can I just bow down? Because he is just astonishing on this track. And Bill Ward as well. Yes. You know, welcome, welcome back, Bill. Because he, he yes, true. You know, back from the um back from the dark side. Is there a darker side than Black Sabbath? I mean, battling the drink demons. This is just Ian Gillan was born to sing death metal, by the way. He should have done it far it's earlier in his career. Yeah. This is just, yeah, heavy as fuck. You've done the review for me, and that's how it'll appear on the website. I mean, that's that's what it is. This is just brilliant. It's just a, it's a modern update, isn't it, of some of their sort of dubious stuff from their first couple of albums, but just done benefiting from having Gillen at the mic, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Those trademark screams and everything. Just a brilliant track. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And the first of several of this style. I love trashed, but this style is what makes the yeah. album to me. And this would be the, this is the, the the track where I go. I think this might just be my favourite track on well, the album. And then, of course, it's followed by one which is might just be my favourite as well on very similar ground. You know, it's a, it's a sensational yeah. end to a side. Those two tracks. Forget the dark. Yes, yeah, I mean it's very dis- it's disturbing, isn't it? Because I mean, despite the I guess the light-hearted making fun of you know this priest that turns up, 
I mean, there's some really anti-religious sentiment on it, isn't there? You know, the the, the devil mm. and the priest can't exist if one goes away. Watch out for religion. It, it's thought-provoking and disturbing, quite progressive, I think. Yes, it's, yeah, it's very true, actually. It is a very progressive track. Um, they can't exist without each other. So, you know, it is thought-provoking, you're right. It leads into another instrumental, which is The Dark. Arguably, Steve, you might think the instrumental here is better than The Dark by Metal Church. Because <laughs> uh, yes. you weren't a big fan. Right? Not a big fan. Um, Not a big fan. <laughs> 45 seconds of, of kind of quite disturbing noises. And then Zero the Hero just winds in, doesn't it? There's, it's like this hellish soundscape of, well, I don't know, just guitars wailing and the bass running and this kind of sort of almost prison style chain gang drum beat going on in the background and then it just drops into this relentlessly doomy riff and i, I love this track i love gillen's lyrical cleverness on it i think it's just brilliant this this first side i just think is almost a production side as pieces of music ignoring the instrumentals these three tracks yeah. almost flawless yeah. Absolutely, I echo that. This is just Christ disturbing the priest was bleak. This, I mean, this is every bit as bleak, isn't it? Bloody hell! But you can see why a lot of modern day death metal bands love this. Reading the reviews from some of those, you know, modern bands, this must be a kind of you know touchstone piece of death metal, mm. basically. God, the menace. Jesus, um, Butler said it was his favourite off the album. And I, and I was going to say I'm with him on that. Um, my marks might suggest that. But I, listen, I love it. Unremittingly heavy. It's just mm. a weight. Well, Richard, you always use the word heft. And this has just got weight, hasn't it? Mm. I think what makes it is you've got Iomi playing very low, you know, presumed is detuned guitar and Butler at the same time. So you've just got this rolling thumping riff you know then the the big thumps of the drums behind it this is the this is mm. the closest yes, yeah. riff to sabbath on the album anybody heard any keyboards from jeff nichols yet <laughs> no i was surprised when you said it yes <laughs> so anyway zero the hero brings side one to a close and you flip it over and uh, let's just put it out here now arguably side two isn't as strong but i think it's got some really interesting moments on it not least um the title track and the end of the final track keep it warm what side two is very simple it's got three bangers and then the title track that's where i am with it that's where i am with it okay well let's go through them i mean keep it warm um I think it was Geezer Butler or Bill Ward. Bill Ward said that he watched Gillen performing this and suddenly understood why he was such an amazing singer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll come on to that. It closes out the album. Uh, we start off, though, with Digital Bitch, which is it's fairly tried and trusted lyrical territory free in Gillen, isn't it? Because it's a bit like knocking at your back door as yeah. well. It's all about a rich woman who is obviously a bitch. It's pretty heavy, but it's not, it's fast. It's not as fast as trashed, I don't think. Um, it's not as good as trashed. No. So, you know, as a side opener, it's it doesn't quite scale those heights, but it's quite catchy. It's my least favorite track on, oddly enough, on the on this side, I think. Okay. Yeah, I love that riff, love the pace. This actually is a classic example of the type of track that Sabbath probably would never have written. And Geezer Butler certainly would never have written lyrically. 
her big fat daddy was a money machine. He made a fortune from computers. She's got more money than I've ever seen, but she's a greedy, emotional looter. I mean, it could only have come from Gillen, though, couldn't it? And yeah. and and I, yeah. and I think they were all quite uneasy. Gillen had basically just rewritten their subject matter. Gillen had just suddenly gone, no, 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 no. It's time for some poetry, folks, and it's time for my mind <laughs> to just go the way I go. And it would have felt very different to them after you know well over a decade of doing what they did. To me, it's hilarious. Well, I still like this song. I, I, I take your point, but... Um... It's quite interesting because Geezer Butler, I get the impression Geezer Butler is quite a hard guy to please. Probably. I think he got roundly fucked off with the kind of wizards and witches and rainbows and towers mm. of the of the Dio era. I think he loved the music, but mm-hmm. lyrically, I think he, he and Sabbath parted company emotionally during the, the Dio years. And I think he, he was quite intolerant of the lyrical content of this album as well. Mm. Um, because what he wanted to do was go back to that sort of the black walls of my bedroom kind of approach to heavy metal. So interesting. Mm. Um, Richard? Uh, I think I think this is my lowest score. Got really annoyed by the muffled production on it. It's a Speed King ripoff for me. This is this is Black Sabbath, Do Deep Purple and, okay, and yeah. Fail. That's, I hear that. Well, okay, Steve, track two, side two. The title track. Tell me what you don't like. Oh, it's just a dirge. It's just an absolute dirge. It's just candle mass, but even more boring. That's where I am with Born Again. I'm getting so little out of it. It's because oh, you've so- come into this mentally saying, ah, well, it's just the Ian Gillen band with some different backing yes, people. So yes. um, it's not surprising. Yeah. <laughs> it really isn't surprising. Is this not Born Again's Planet Caravan? Cause you yeah, yeah, like yeah. And I didn't like that, quite possibly so. Yeah, no, that would make sense. But I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, this is this is doom metal. It, yeah. It's moody, it's atmospheric. I mean, the other thing I thought about was, it's, it's almost, you know, have they invented grunge 10 years early? Um, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, so, that is a really good question, isn't it? Because it is quite grungy, but it's good. There's a slight difference. And the other thing, Steve, is it, I mean, one other issue I have with this album is mm. that Gillen is doing most of it at 100 miles an hour. What I love about the Gillen band oh, yeah, albums okay. and also what he does with Deep Purple is his light and shade and, and the fact that he really does rein it back in, in some songs because he's as good there as he is at his limit. And so it was quite nice to hear the variation in how he was singing uh, in this song it, with a lot of the others I got a little bit tired the fact that he was at the top of his range all the time mm-hmm. and singing really well, no, fast I've got no problem with that I, I, I just don't yeah it's just the song really I mean I, I, I see everything that you're seeing or hear everything you're hearing but it's just not for me incidentally before you move on while we're talking about Born Again we need to talk about the album cover don't we isn't that part of the reason why it was loathed pretty much everywhere it's one of the rated one of the worst album covers of all time isn't it yeah and I'm not entirely sure why no. to be honest I mean it, it's a rip-off it's been used on a on a, a another album I've, actually while you guys are talking about the cover I'm going to find out which one it is well I'll tell you what um, while, while you're doing that then I'm going to tell you because I had to look up I had to look up um Kerrang's top 50 worst album covers ever which were compiled last year so plenty right. to go at and Born Again is still in there and so are the Scorpions twice you can guess those, I'm sure. The Animal Magnetism and Love Drive, I presume. Gotcha. 
Rush once. Hemispheres. Uh, did I just hear? Yes, Hemispheres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kerrang's top 50 worst album cover. So Love Drive, Animal Love Magnetism Drive. was in there. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Exodus so... is bonded by blood was the surprise for me. But anyway. I mean, is this, is this, um, is this Kerrang suddenly getting PC? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, what. I, what, what, I'll ask you to, what I'll ask you both to do now, and indeed anyone who's listening, is go on to Google Images and the, the pick of their top 50 and type in the Californian new metalers Edema, A-D-E-M-A. And the album is Toppled Giants. And that is the winner. That is the absolute award winner as far as I'm concerned. So not Metal Tit then? No, that's right. They were on that sort of It was on uh, Depeche Mode's 12-inch single, New Life, this image. Oh, okay. Um, and it was reworked for Black Sabbath. I think it was done, basically, it was commissioned at the last minute by Steve Crusher Jewel. I think okay. the Kerrang oh, photographer, photographer. Yeah. Who, who said that he basically prevaricated, did absolutely fuck all with it until about the day before it was due to be delivered and then just doctored this image, gave it a purple cover. It's Black Sabbath's second purple cover, isn't it, after Master of Reality, mm. and um, and submitted it. And Tony Iommi loved it. Gillen mm. said he vomited when he saw that's, it. That's right. And Bill Ward yeah. said, I didn't have anything to do with the cover. When I first saw it, I hated it. Well, that was the point. You, so, they didn't need another stick to be beaten with, did they? So, but, but they've come up with an album cover that is controversial and, and you know bound to be you yeah. know divide opinions as well. So, it kind of sort of yeah. an own goal, really, isn't it? I but don't which, understand. So it. Which Edema tr- album was it? Top of uh, the Giants. Top of the Giants. Well, that looks fine to me. What's wrong with that? <laughs> You've been you've been looking at too many yes covers. No, that is that is a shit out. <laughs> Richard, what were you going to say? So I, I, I honestly don't see the what all the fuss was about in terms of the born again cover. No, I mean it, the, the no, nor me. You know, it's a devil baby, presumably. It fits in with the title track, so yeah, I honestly can't see what all the fuss is about. Okay, well, Born Again um, moves into, uh, well, Steve will say another banger, Hotline. <sighs> Do you know what? The, the reason that I that I don't include this as, as one of the album's better songs is because, and I, I'm with Richard here, Ian Gillan spends so much time at the absolute screechy end of his range that it uh, by the end of it, it just pisses me off. <laughs> um, it, it really does. I, 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 I'm my finger is always hovering over the skip button. Sometimes you just think, stop, just bloody <laughs> stop screaming. It's this well, kind of Lusitania Express you, moment, isn't it? Yeah, I, I love this. <laughs> yeah, despite oh, everything I said, yeah. Um, yes, I, I just love this. Um, I mean, there's shades of deep purple again, great, groovy, powerful driving riff. As you say, the, the bass line is phenomenal in this. You said earlier, Mark, about when they'd finished watching him, uh, Gillen record Keep It Warm. I could imagine them watching in disbelief as he belted Hotline yeah. out. What a vocal performance. Yes, he is. He's at that high end of the range. But this is the track of the album for me. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Get in there. Well, I've got no issue with the music at all. I mean, it's, it absolutely, it crushes. It's so good. The riff. And all, everything you've said, absolutely. Just, I would say 80% of Gillen's vocal performance is brilliant. But that 20% where it's just like shattering glass. Um, <laughs> yeah. Fair play to the, I mean, yeah, he can crank a note. There's no doubt about that. But, oh my God, just hurt my ears. Anyway, um, what doesn't hurt my ears is Keep It Warm, which I just think is just a fantastic close to the album. Um 
it's it's just fantastically kind of relentless it just keeps coming at you doesn't it um gillen's actually emoting in this which i think is always a kind of a magic moment on any album where he gets to do some of this so i can understand why bill ward would have looked at this and gone that's just amazing because it is and just a fantastic close to the album. I'm not so bothered about this one. Uh, I, I, lo- I really like Iommi's chords. I think you're getting a, an amazing Butler bass line. But I, I found it a bit forgettable. And actually, isn't it funny? I find this more dirgy than the title track. That's interesting. I found it I found it a little bit Southern rock at the start. I'm with Richard. I'm a bit more lukewarm than keep it warm. Um, I do love that there's a little injection of pace from Ward and Butler midway through that solo that's very clever and just kind of picks it up um, but then they grind it back again slow it all down plods and it's heavy but um, yeah no, I'm, I'm with Richard on this it's kind of okay all right so highs and lows people uh, Steve uh, well, if we're marking Stonehenge uh, uh, no we're not okay well born again then from that end of the scale the highs I just I tell you what it's that double act at the end of side one and I'm going to give it to disturbing the priest Richard so my low uh, will be digital bitch and my high is just mentioned hotline okay uh, my low is also digital bitch and my high is also uh, disturbing the priest i think in the end i gave it to ron zero the hero but um that side one takes them beating uh, i think that's going to be quite interesting when we come to score it see where that ends up in the hall of fame because i suspect it's going to be higher than pretty much anybody would have bet for it but we'll see we'll see when we get there uh, it's time to move on by well seven years to well the rodents from the west coast of america from deep in la it's rat and their fifth album, Detonator, Steve. Yes, Detonator, Rat's fifth album. Sixth, if you include the EP, but we don't, so fifth album. I cannot begin to describe the apprehension I felt when I bought this back in the day. Bought on face value, inevitably, as an unashamed rap fan. No questions asked. Just went out and bought it. As soon as they come out, regardless of reviews. Although, actually, the reviews for this were quite positive, I seem to recall. But after the horror of album three, Dancing Undercover, I know we've got different views on that. I don't like it. And the abject misery of album four, Reach for the Sky, which I think we're both pretty much agreed on. I think we were buying this more through hope than expectation, Mark, I guess. Yeah, So maybe some loyalty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, which was never misplaced. I, I had no issue with that. And so, initially, you slap it on you're greeted by a track that as I say would sit this is shame 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 would happily sit on a rat's greatest hits album as far as I'm concerned it's that good um, and I love it and there are definitely more highs on this than lows but it ain't out of the cellar let's make that clear it ain't invasion of your privacy it's not even close and I kind of knew that at the time but what has happened over time certainly over the first few years of owning this is I kind of started to accept it for what it was, which you're going to have to, aren't you? You're going to have to stop trying to make those comparisons because it's, it's clearly going to you know, fail on that level if you're trying to compare it with Out of the Cellar, for example. Um, and it grew on me anyway. It did grow on me. There's no two ways about it. There's still a couple of tracks on here I could happily never hear again, but only two. You know, I mean, that's 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 a massive improvement on how I initially felt. And it's also a massive improvement on Reach with the Sky, where about half the album's shite. So, but there's, there's still a couple of tracks on here that I'm just not bothered about. But, so I've gone back to Detonator over the last couple of weeks and listened to it in its entirety for the first time in Yonks. Um, shame, shame, shame. As I say, I'm one step away. A playlist mainstays and have been for years. I adore them. One's not very rat, but I just love it. And I've gone back to it and I'm loving the whole thing. Kind of wondering what I didn't get. Forget the obvious tracks. There's a couple of absolute bangers on here, which I didn't think were bangers at the time. And I'm not talking about shame because I did. 
There's a couple on here that, do you know what? I just thought, have I forgotten that they were on here? I can't wait to talk about them. So I'm, so I'm kind of still learning about this album, you know, which is madness, isn't it? Because it's been, you know, out for 30 odd years. Opening album sleeve notes. And it was released on August 21st, 1990 on Atlantic, uh, 42 minutes, 12 seconds long. The producer was Desmond Child. And that, of course, was the big gig here because he not only helped produce it, but he wrote, co-wrote, well, pretty much wrote all of the songs. So it's been Desmond Childed. And um, that's a distinct style. And it's not rat, put it that way. Um, and that's, uh, so we've got, it's a very different sounding album because of his greasy paw prints all over it. Several studios were used, Music Grinder, Lion Share and Microplant, all in LA, obviously. Previous albums, as I reached for the sky. The next album, well, this, of course, was the breakup album. The next album was Rats, which the, the kind of fans call 1999, so as not to be confused with Rat, the EP. That came out in 1999. Clues are there, um, which was, you know, nine years later. But, but this is the last album with the classic Rat lineup of Stephen Piercy on vocals, Warren De, De Martini on guitar, Robin Crosby, the late Robin Crosby, who died a couple of years after. Well, he, he, he died in 2000, but he was very, very ill during the making of this on rhythm guitar. Quang Crucier on bass guitar and Bobby Blotzer, the Blotz on drums. Reached 55 in the UK, rock charts, 23 in the US, went gold in the States. Um, and it has, well, it has 11 tracks on it, but the first one is merely the intro to Shame, 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 followed by Loving You is a Dirty Job, Scratch That Itch. And if I say those two very quickly, that's how much I can, that, then you can forget them as quickly as I have. One Step Away and Hard Time, and then on side two, Heads I Win Tells You Lose, All or Nothing, Can't Wait on Love, <sighs> Giving Yourself Away, Shakes Head, and Top Secret. Those, that's the track listing on Detonator. Warren De Martini said the timing of this album worked against it, 1990. We know what 1990 was all about. He said had it followed Dancing Undercover and come out in 88, it would have been a slightly different thing. That The rock world shifted on its axis by 1990 and stunts like Detonator were harder to pull off by then. I would counter that if it's a good album, it can come out any time and do well, if I'm honest. So let's not blame the onset of grunge for this. An album lives and dies by how good it was, as far as I'm concerned. And basically, I think this is a, this is a decent enough album. It's much better than the previous two albums. It's not as good as Out of the Cellar and Invasion of Your Privacy. And there's me saying I'm not going to make any comparisons. I've just done it again. But um, that's where I sit with Detonator. Now, who to come to first? Fanboy like me or Richard? Richard. This has really grown on me through this listening you can really see the impact of desmond child on this can't you and um, we'll we'll talk about the uh, the comparisons and the sound alikes as, as we go but there's also i think some some real classic rat on here um it is a bit up and down but a few of these tracks yeah really really good and and i think amongst the best the band have done so yeah okay. i've enjoyed it so you prefer it to Master the Cellar then? I'm guessing that straight away. I don't think it's far away. Mm. Mark? Okay, so um, so where am I with this? I was up late one night in 1990 and I was watching some stuff on TV. Might even have been MTV, I have no idea. But the video for Loving You is a Dirty Job came on and... My God, they're having some fun in that uh, that video, let me tell you. And there are lots of girls in it, lots of water and lots of bikinis. And, uh, well, I was sold. Um, <laughs> and I think, Steve, you and I are going to disagree quite a lot over the next 20, 25 minutes. Not because I think we've 
reached different conclusions about the album as a whole although i don't think it's quite as good as i think you think it is but on the the individual tracks so i think we've probably reached the same point but by different routes this is certainly better than reach for the sky i'm far more tolerant and far more forgiving and far more affectionate towards dancing undercover than you are i think that for me has improved over time as an album because like you i didn't like it much when it came out i think there are some great tracks on here certainly very good tracks on here i I think there's there's an awful lot of filler overall i just feel like this is rat with incisors blunted and tails docked it's not really it's not really rat it's not it hasn't got mm-hmm. the swagger and it hasn't got the sass and it doesn't have the sleaze mm-hmm. and it doesn't have other things beginning with s but it does have a little bit of shit <laughs> and yeah. um all in all as a 1990 album for a glam metal band out of LA it's a decent enough effort I think there are moments on here where I want to put Desmond Child up against a wall and because he's turned some of he's turned the band in places into Bon Jovi and I'm not talking 1986 version Bon Jovi I'm talking 1988 version Bon Jovi and that's not a good thing so I, I, I kind of feel like it's a step up from reaching the sky I quite like a lot of it and I'm don't much care for quite a lot of it. He was so determined to make it sound like Bon Jovi that he actually brought John Bon Jovi in, didn't he, for one of the tracks. But I think we all agree, kind of. I just think maybe our marks per track by track may change, but I think we're all ultimately in agreement. I don't think I'm majorly impressed with it, but I I do like it, I have to say. I do like it. So yeah, six tracks on side one. Five, as I say, five. Shame is the intro into shame, shame, shame. And it's, it's, side one is such a mix for me. Two absolute bangers, as I've explained um, or articulated. Shame, shame, shame. One step away. Sandwiching a pair of tracks, which hand on heart, I had absolutely no time for when this first came out and got me so irritated. I thought loving news a, a dirty job was just such a horrible sop to the record company in search of that big glam hit. It was just utterly shameless and scratch that itch wasn't a lot better. That's grown on me, funnily enough. I'm still very indifferent towards Loving You. When you listen to Loving You, that's where you see Desmond Charles mitts all over this. And, and I don't think rap benefit from it particularly. 
So that's my view. That's my overview on side one. I don't know whether you got finishes off by the way with hard time, which is a kind of throwback to old school rap. But anyway, shame, shame, shame. The opener. What do you think, boys? Yeah, it's a good start, isn't it? There's a real swagger in Percy's voice. There's always just something a little bit different about them, isn't there? The funky guitar riff, and there's some variety. I love the drop into the bridge, and it's up again. Really nice little licks from Demartini throughout. I think they there are tracks where they're allowed to be classic rap, and this is one of them. Mm, this is one of them. Yeah, dirty. Yeah, isn't it? I agree with that, and dirty in a good way. This is classic rap. This could go on any one of their albums it may be a bit too polished for out of the cellar but yeah, certainly absolutely. there's an argument to say it would sound all right on invasion i mean i think they share lead guitar duty in this don't they d martini and crosby but the guitars are the star of the show on it there's yeah. no doubt about that um and the guitar solo don't know who I, I think it's crosby but i could be wrong just wonderful wailing guitar solo fantastic Crosby, to be fair, was barely at the races here. He was so ill. But he still manages to drive it along, doesn't he? And yeah, and Richard's right to mention that those Demartini fills and, and, and runs because they crop up all the time throughout this. They're a constant throughout this album as they were throughout, you know, his career with rap. Love and News a Dirty Job, though. That's immediately issue. Immediately, I've got a red flag. You know, back in there, I just thought they were sort of regurgitating some of the stuff off the previous two albums. Um, it's not grown on me. It's not great. It's brash glam. Band like Aerosmith would have done it a lot better. It's just not for rap. There, I've said it. <laughs> so the fact I like it, <laughs> and not and not only do I like it, but I really like the phonic mix version of it. Oh, for um, fuck's sake! I know I'm a heathen. Like I say, this was the lead single, I think, on the album. Yeah, it was. Um, it's the first time I came across it. I quite like it. I find, I think it's funky, and I think it's got a, a fantastic sort of heavy riff. On it, yes, it's Desmond Child, and yes, it's a sop to the record company. I get all that, but that's where they were in 1990. And yeah, if they are going to have to compromise a bit and write stuff like this or record stuff like this, then this is a decent enough track, as far as I'm concerned. I agree with Mark, Steve. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> <laughs> It's a really good track too. Yeah. You've got that opener and this the, the, this just settles the whole album down into <laughs> a really good groove. I think Piercy's voice in this is really... I, I love the husk and the croak and the attitude still in his voice. Good thump to it. Mm. Good sing-along chorus. Mm. So, yeah, I'm I'm happy with this one. Yeah, as I said, I'd have been happy if it was done by another band. Not for me. I, I, I'd, I'd have switched it with Scratch That Itch. Which, again, I didn't like particularly, but when I first heard it that's grown on me a lot scratch that itch i must admit and it's the little things isn't it that pre-chorus just a few seconds where they kind of go back to cellar or invasion de martinez solo isn't the best i know it's him on leading that there's some bits of classic rat in here particularly yeah. the phrasing and the notes in uh, in pierce's yeah. lines that's that yeah. could be right on out of the cellar but the rest of it it's okay nice strong finish yeah. but i prefer the first two the verses i love the verses that these are classic rat the phrasing you know the melody in it absolutely it's it's you know one hundred percent rat, and then we get into a very pedestrian chorus. But yeah, this is this is a step down for me, I'm afraid. But you know, the blot's going at it like a motherfucker. <laughs> he is, he is. Yeah, the engine room still, still, still cranking it up. Um, oh, yeah. The interesting. Th- I, mean, I thought it needed resuscitating the album at this stage, having initially, as I say, I've warmed to scratch that itch, but 
not to loving you, but the interesting thing about One Step Away, which is the next track, is that it's the most unwrapped song to, to breathe life into an album. But it does. It's an unlikely corker. This is rap going down a kind of, you know, almost a Bon Jovi avenue with melody, what mean, catchiness. What, what, what do you mean, almost? <laughs> <laughs> it's so hooky. They are... <laughs> this is a formulaic Desmond Child track, this. Yeah, it is. It's over poppy, it's formulaic, but I do like it. Yes, yeah, <laughs> guilty pleasures, it's true. Even the fade out at the end yes. of the song is Desmond Child. I wrote three letters in the first word, yuck. <laughs> this is so late 80s hair metal. <laughs> Fuck yeah. me. Yep. Yeah, it it's, is. It, yeah. yeah, but yep. no, but it's Tom Petty without the cool. It is just so anodyne. It's not true. You two. Oh my god! I don't know what you're on. I've no. loved this for. This I've is loved awful. this for no. years. Fucking oh. awful song, Steve. Well, I'm not feeling guilty. You're not going to shame me. I don't give a shit. In fact, when the show's over, I'm going to put it on repeat till I go to sleep. It's not as it's yeah. not as Bon Jovi as another as the you know another no. track. No. Right. Yeah, we'll come to that in a second. But let's just finish off side one with hard time, which yeah, I like. Right. Um, well, thank no, no, God. no. It's the two out. It's the two side. Closes this one is is you know this could have sat on cellar quite happily as far as I'm yeah. concerned hard time probably somewhere at the back end of side two let's not over elevate it and it's a song that drives and that's what all the best rap songs did didn't they they drove yeah it's a mean little cussed fucker for want of a better word <laughs> you're so you're so articulate. <laughs> <laughs> And it's Blotzer's contribution to Rat in terms of his rhythms. Blotzer's use of the ride symbol really lifts. That, that's what really makes a difference about, about Rat songs. And yeah, uses it a lot. Yeah. The best Rat tracks are the tracks where Blotzer's driving it. So if you listen to, for example, Lay It Down, that song works because of the drums mm. as much as anything mm. else. And there are so many tracks that they did that absolutely rely on Bobby Blotzer and this is one of them I think I love this track I think it's great I think it's the best track on the album okay yeah well it's not but it's but you're right it's it's, it's one of the best ones on the album certainly <laughs> side two there's a nosedive initially um five tracks first oh, one's head side win tails you lose there's the threat of a quite decent verse or two but it just descends into a sort of poisonous chorus I mean Pierce's gravelly vocals will only ever make this sound like a rat song but it's a bit tame this is the Bon Jovi song on the album isn't it it's mm. the, you know Desmond Child well done Des you've managed to turn a very good band into John into John Bon Jovi's clone fantastic yeah this is yeah. awful. This, I'm just, just it's it's just rat light. Yes, awful. Yeah, it does. However, get a an entry on ultimate cowbell. <laughs> Very good. A uh, bit of cowbell in this. Uh, not a high score. Three point one nine four eight two. Next up is All or Nothing, which is um, well, it's, it's much better. And it's why is it better? It's better because Crosby was central to the writing of it, and he understood what rap were. He was a big songwriter in the early days and, you know, had very little to do on this album for obvious reasons. He wasn't well, um, but he, he understood the band. And, and and this is a better rap track, as far as I'm concerned, all or nothing. De Martinez solo is superb. Backing vocals from someone called Miriam Val, which is million anecdotes of no interest. Doesn't add anything. <laughs> but, but the song itself is good. You know, it's really good. I mean, Crosby wasn't prominent enough on Detonator because he was off his face. But, but when he was asked... His impact was obvious. 
obvious in a track like this. I disagree. This for me is an Aerosmith clone. This is Ragdoll that's lost some stuffing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly uh, like what that. it is. That's not necessarily an insult, is it? You, you do well to write anything as good as Ragdoll, but um, Ragdoll lights. No, 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 no it's, it's shit, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, if we come to the same marks, the three of us, after this conversation, I'll be astonished. <laughs> Hold on, I've just, I've just got to do something. Just bear with me for one moment. Just bear with me. Oh, I thought maybe Desmond Child had co-written Ragdoll, but actually he didn't. He co-wrote Hearts oh, Of course, Time he was all over and, Permanent Vacation. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was. Dude, yeah, yeah, yeah. He looked like a lady. But yeah. he didn't write Ragdoll. Yeah. But he must have heard it because I think he's borrowed quite a yes. lot. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, anyway, Ragdoll talk aside, can't wait on love. Track three um, on side two. Yeah, suitably sleazy with that sort of crunching rat riff. Not bad at all. The Martini earns his corn again. Solos and runs and bridges and fills and bits everywhere. I like it. I like it. I, I, I can't deny it. And why would I? It's, it's fascinating. Is it, this is one that I think is... I've just written here, more Bon Jovi, anyone? I find this pretty average. Yeah. I've only scored it above average, but I, I kind of think that's okay. I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not shooting my load over it. Don't get me wrong. Not that you need to know that. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a rat and roll thing to say. Um, I think I don't want to know when you are. <laughs> no, no. I don't think anybody needs to know that. Funny enough. I think the chorus is very Bon Jovi, but I don't think the verses are. I think the verses, that, that's quite a cool riff going on there. Yeah, I agree. Um, a rat riff. It's a, I think, it, it, I think yeah, it is. It's a good rat riff. Um, and I think, it's, I think this is better than most of this side, mm. I have to say, just for that riff, because at least there's some beef in it. You know what mm. I mean? Yeah. And we're missing quite a lot of beef from this album as a whole, I think. That, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And there is still some beef to come. But before we get to that, we need to talk about giving yourself away. Shakes his head yeah. in desperation once more. This this would have sat nicely on one of Rat's other albums, like say Slippery When Wet or New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, Piercy cannot sing this type of shit. So why make him? You know, he, this is not for him. And if it's not for him, it's not a Rat song, as far as I'm concerned. It's an awful. I mean, it's not an awful tune. It's just so lame. From a band who were all about edge. There's no edge in this at all. It's awful. We've already you know, name-checked Bon Jovi and Aerosmith. I, I think this is the kind of song that Desmond Child would have reserved for Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> yes. I quite like his voice on this, though, uh, actually. Okay. Yeah, usually well, he sounds more like Warren Zevon on, when he's in, on the lower register. Yeah. Fucking Weirwolves of London. This is fucking shit. <laughs> It really is. It is awful. And this is the problem with the album. So it goes from somewhere quite up here to way down here. The albums that have done well in the podcast are the ones that have got that median line and they some of the tracks are just below it, some of the tracks are just above it, but it's pretty much all the way through on the line. This is like, it's like a bathtub gra- graph. It's just, it goes from... Mm. Massive highs to massive lows and back up again. It's the world's worst roller coaster. And the band, the band clearly weren't at their best coming into it. I mean, Piercy's admitted as much after years on the road and that. Crosby ill, very ill. They were pretty fucked up, all five of them, I think. And he, he, he had this well, lovely they, quote. 
you can only do so much when you're given only four colored pencils and told to create the universe. You know, he was he was basically saying, you know, that the record company had just shafted him. You know, they they said they wanted an album yeah. that they didn't know how to they didn't know how to do really. I mean, it wasn't you know in their ballpark. Well, but... They they were barely on speaking terms mm. at this point, were they? Mm. You know, yeah. they, it was a miracle they got them into the studio. Frankly, yeah. But luckily, what I would say is that the last track the rats ever did in this guise this five piece is an absolute gem i think this is the one top secret it's a goodie it's a real real goodie it's mean crosby kicking it on demartini all those little fills and bits piercy is gravelly best and an ace chorus this is old school i just adore it this a track this good should not be left to the end of the album better than that should replace loving news a dirty job i wonder if this had been around for a while it does sound like an old song doesn't it mm. maybe they just rediscovered that mojo for one song. Oh, it's this, a great song. Yeah, it's, if you listen, oh, it's yeah. all going on. It's classic rat going on in there. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Tell us you hate it, Richard. No, I don't, I don't hate it at all. I, I think I agree that it is more classic rat, but I wouldn't say it's a good song. Do, do you think we're just desperate for, for it to be good? I mean, genuinely, I, th- <laughs> I do wonder whether we are, you know, particularly Steve and I, for obvious reasons, whether we are yeah, just... Yeah, yeah really want it to be good and uh, and, it, and it just hasn't been largely mm, no well get, after giving yourself away yeah you just please, please <laughs> anything just, anything you'll before do. you yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right yeah anyway there you go that's detonator highs and lows richard giving yourself away is my low and it's between one step away and loving you's a dirty job and just to piss you off steve i'm going to give it to loving you <laughs> 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 oh dear i can shoulder i can shoulder these brick bats don't worry about that you did what you want bastard <laughs> yeah giving yourself away is the low uh and yeah hard time i think hard time is just fab really do yeah, it is yeah no i'm with you on giving yourself away which just about that or loving is a dirty job and shame 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 for me it's a great way to start the album shame the rest of it didn't follow suit there you go that's rap. That's detonator. That's the second album of episode seventy six. So we move forward another five years, and if that's divided opinion, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where opinions are now going to go. But we are moving forward, as I say, five years to Van Halen and Balance. Richard, yes, it's Balance. Van Halen's Balance recorded in nineteen ninety five. Some background. I mean, there's there's a lot of commentary about the front cover of the album and uh, the uh, the Siamese conjoined twins on a on a seesaw and what that might mean given the mood of the band at the time but I always find if you flip the cover over and look at the photograph on the back of the album that says even more what you've got on the photograph on the back of the album is the Van Halen brothers striding out in the sunshine but behind them Michael Anthony is walking in a shadow and um, you can barely see Sammy Hagar because he's hidden behind entirely. And if ever there was a picture that captured the mood in a band, that was it. Let's come back to more of that in, in a second, do some facts and figures. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, it's uh, their, their 10th uh, studio album, uh, Van Halen. and uh, But it was their, their last with Sammy Hagar. It was... Uh, Recorded between May and September 1994, uh, released very beginning of 1995 on Warner Brothers Records. Where else? Lengthwise, we are reviewing the the vinyl version as we always do. It's a shade under 
uh, sorry, shade over 49 minutes in length. The CD had an extra track. Producer-wise, they got in Bruce Fairbairn to challenge them and perhaps push them in some different directions. Um, it was recorded at uh, Eddie Van Halen's own studios uh, and then uh, vocals and various other bits and pieces uh, at uh, Fairbairn Studios uh, up in uh, Vancouver. So yeah, album-wise, for an awful carnal knowledge preceded this. And uh, as this was the last album with Hagar, the next album was uh, the uh, awful Van Halen 3, where they got uh, Gary Sharon uh, in. Personnel-wise, so it's the uh, the core of Van Halen, Michael Anthony on bass, Alex Van Halen drums, and Edward Van Halen on guitar, keyboards, and then Sammy Hagar on vocals. Um, I mean, US-wise, it did huge. It went huge. I mean, it went triple platinum, uh, went to number one. So, you know, it, it didn't dent the uh, their popularity over there. UK-wise, it did okay. It got to number eight in the UK charts. And the tracks, uh, well, again, a bit like uh, we've just discussed uh, with uh, Born Again, um, there's some funny little interludes. And so apart from that, the, the, the album is actually nine tracks in length. But uh, yeah, overall, with these two little interludes, on the vinyl at least, it adds up to 11. Uh, they're all tracks written by the band uh, collectively and uh, side one is the seventh seal can't stop loving you don't tell me what love can do amsterdam big fat money and then this little interlude at the end called doing time and then side two aftershock little interlude called strung out then not enough take me back and feeling so that's uh, the facts and figures and yeah to come back to the uh, the environment the, the the frictions were starting to show whether that had anything to do with Eddie Van Halen's newly found sobriety or potentially the death of their long-term manager, Ed Leffler, who uh, died of cancer a year or so earlier. But uh, yeah, sort of things weren't great, particularly between Sammy Hagar and Eddie Van Halen. Uh, I mean, Sammy Hagar, I mean, he, he joked in, in an interview I saw, you know, basically, I, I never get my way in this band and I'm sick of it. He, he, he said it with a big smile on his face and laughing, but you can't help but think that uh, that was actually sort of the undercurrent of uh, of what was was going on for, for me this is there is some really i think quite grown up van halen uh, on this um and when mark you played this to me and uh i instantly really connected with a few of the tracks i think there's some really good mature songwriting on this but also there are some songs that really should not be on this album on any Van Halen album but I still like it uh, and I've enjoyed listening to it again and I think there are a couple of tracks that are best that they've done with Hagar and are up there with some of the best they even did with Roth but be interested in your opening comments most of all Stevens it's interesting isn't it when you talk about some of the battles that have to be won within these bands and they're only ever won by the Van Halen brothers aren't they if you think yep. Roth yep. Templeman um, and obviously Anthony and Hagar I dare say others yeah, no, no, it's um, it's interesting what you think. I mean, the truth of the matter is, by this stage, you know, I had no real interest in what Van Halen were up to because they were so far removed from, you know, the first instalment of the band that, you know, no animosity, just no interest, really. And uh, so this, to me, is a bit like Born Again in as much as this is so far removed from the Van Halen I loved in the same way that Born Again to Sabbath fans, presumably, so many light years away from Paranoid, say, that, that they could probably look at that quite objectively, and that's kind of where I am with this. I'm just listening to a hard rock album, um, which contains, you know, some good stuff and some pants, it has to be said. But, you know, a, a lot of 
interesting stuff done by a band who just happened to share the name of another band I used to love in the early 80s. I mean, there are one or two real lows on here. This is the whole point, potentially very low, but and they get low marks ordinarily, but then you listen to the track again. But when you kind of forensically listen to them and then listen, we're in the company of genius here, aren't we? You know, whatever you say, EVH would do things to attract that would that would that can transform it. You know, from what seems initially pretty shit, he'll do things, and that'll add half a mark a mark or more onto tracks. But you know, in the hands of lesser mortals, some of these tracks would be very very forgettable. With his lightness of touch, they're a little bit better than that. It's it's not for me. There are both sides start off with an absolute banger, and both sides drop off. But listen, I've tried to listen to it as a as a as a as a piece of work rather than anything Van Halenish, and it's it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Sounds like my opening comment about rap or born again. <laughs> like my, yeah. my opening comment about born again. Mark. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The the dynamic of the band has a lot to do with the sound of this album, which neither you nor I would have appreciated back in the day. So this is a band that is totally at odds with one another. There's a huge schism. You've got the Van Halen boys. On one side of the room, Michael Anthony and Sammy Hagar. On the other, as you say, Steve, there's only going to be one winner in that fight, and Michael Anthony and Sammy Hagar depart to form Chickenfoot. But through this conflict, which is largely driven by Eddie Van Halen's drinking problem um, and and Hagar's absolute lack of, or or his patience has run out with it. I think I don't think I think I don't think he was intolerant of it to begin with. I think he was sympathetic, but there comes a point where the work ethic suffers and. I think Hagar had just got to the end of his tether. And there was a massive conflict between the two of them. But out of this comes this amazing burst of creativity because this is a very different Van Halen album. I think they they achieve in this album something they can't achieve as a group of human beings. Hence the name of the album and the and the image on the front of the cover. And these are conjoined people. You know, Anthony and Hagar, the Van Halen boys, they, they're conjoined. And I think they're trying to find some unity that they can't find in their own social dynamic. And I think that's where you get the grown-up Van Halen from, mm. because this is a much more grown-up album. If you do what Steve does and you say, right, I'm just going to judge this as a hard rock album that happens to come out in 1995, then I think when you judge it on its own merits, I think it's got a lot going for it. I don't think it's as good as I thought it was 30 years ago but equally I still think there are elements of it that are bloody fantastic I think it's a really interesting album we often use interesting in a derogatory way I don't (laughs) in this case I think it's a really interesting album Mm -hmm. because I think you can hear the dynamic of the band in a lot of the tracks and then it's padded out with stuff that just shouldn't be there you do get from the album the performances on the album that they are all four of them still giving one hundred percent in Hagar singing. I mean, as you say, Steve, I mean Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen's guitar work is just phenomenal on this. But Michael Anthony's bass, and of course Alex yeah. is there being Alex, so that's fine. Yeah. I'm not sure right. Hagar has ever sounded better on a Van Halen album because mm. he's yeah. singing an octave lower, much more in his range. There's a lot of squealing going on in the earlier albums, which you don't get in this one. So I think mm. there's a lot. There's a lot to commend this album. Commendable. That's a that's a good opening statement.
All right, well, let's do side one. Uh, six tracks, five real songs. So The Seventh Seal, all about sort of God and cheating death. Can't Stop Loving You, very much Hagar's staple. Uh, Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do, uh, a lighter song that then became darker. A song about Amsterdam and getting stoned. A rock and roll song called Big Fat Money. And then this uh, a little percussive interlude called Doing Time. Um, I mean, yeah, it starts a bit weird with didgeridoo and wind chimes, but then you just got the classic Alex Van Halen drums. And then this amazing bass foundation from Anthony, chopping guitar from Eddie, and then these big, big vocals from Hagar. I mean, it really is a wall of sound. I'm a th- yeah, I think it's a cracker. And it's mature, it's confident, and one of the best songs they did with Sammy Hagar. Um, mm. I think it's, it's a corker. Echo everything you said, that, that sort of Buddhist chanting, some bells, the fact that Eddie's wearing a goatee, this is the height of alt-rock, post-grunge, and you're fearing the worst with that start, but there's nothing to worry about at all because it just goes into this absolute stonker, this great, it's not a cross between Aerosmith and Zeppelin, it's just got such a groove to it and it rocks yeah. and it really rocks you know i mean all right it's not the van halen i remember with fondness and love but wow great start do you know the story of the seven seals because this is no. about this is a song about the end of days so the seven seals don't say you never learn anything on this podcast right? <laughs> seven seals were uh proclamations by god the first seal revealed the devil the antichrist riding on a white horse everybody thought he was come to, he had come to bring peace to the land but of course he hadn't um seal two revealed war and a great war raged across the land seal three revealed famine riding a black horse and seal four revealed death with hades riding behind him the fifth seal identified the martyrs uh, who would be rewarded for their faith in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, when they died. Seal 6 was essentially a, a massive earthquake that caused the sun to turn black and the moon to turn red and for the heavens to roll back like a scroll. And the mountains and the islands were removed from their place and the people who survived it ran to caves and survived there. And the seventh seal was the end of days, Armageddon, which brought to an end the First Testament. So who broke the seventh seal? That's what this song's all about. It's about the end of days. It's about the end of time and history as we know it. Because Hagar was a bit upset with what was going on in the world. He didn't want to write a song about knobs then, obviously. No. (laughs) No. Steve, you'd better open the bidding (laughs) on on track two then. Um, My first line on my notes is bet steve loves this <laughs> meant, meant sarcastic yeah, yeah 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 my first line is a better why can't this be love i don't i don't it's not amazing do not get me wrong it's very cheesy and it's very derivative but what i would say is that there's some sparkle in here and if it, other bands would never manage this is what i was talking about with, with eddie van Halen, and they manage it because of him it's incredibly formulated yes um, listen to it if you don't know it. Listen to it carefully. There are some delicious little bits and pieces going on, just fills and runs, just enough to elevate this from the bog stand. It's unashamedly catchy, and I'll never criticise any band, especially Van Halen, for being catchy for fuck's sake. I go jump ten. I'd have given it eleven if I could. No, I, I like it. There's something about it. There's something about it I really like. A bittersweet song about the deterioration of Sammy's marriage, wasn't it? I don't know. There's something about it. <laughs> to better, why can't this be loved? There you go, I'll leave it at that. It's not the only song in this album about Sammy Hagar's marriage yeah. and his divorce. I don't hate this song. I hate myself for liking it. <laughs> um, because 
it is my guilty pleasure. I should not like this song. It shouldn't be here. It really shouldn't be here. <laughs> so every but rose has its thorn. Infuriatingly moment, it? fucking catchy. No, every rose has its thorn. I, I cannot give house room to, and certainly not headspace. But this, it's just infuriatingly catchy, and I yeah. really like it, and it I is. hate myself for liking it. I feel grumpy. Join the club. Mark, join the club, my friend. This is a dip for a second song. Yeah. I, I, I think yeah. the yeah. don't, don't Tell Me should have been song two. Because just when I'd finished listening to the seventh series, I think, ah, oh, yes, right, this is this is the kind of Van Hagar that I want. It then goes back to the Van Hagar that I don't want. Um, <laughs> can I can I ask a question? Mm. Where the fuck are the guitars? <laughs> you can't hear them at all on this song. Well, you do a little bit. Yeah, a few little picky point. bits from yeah. Eddie on there. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Then don't tell me his track three. I I think I think this is fantastic. Uh, it's another highlight. I love the, the the powerful, really choppy riffs. I think this has got a superb vocal performance from Sammy Hagar. Originally, it was written as another celebration of love, but Eddie suggested that uh, the the lyric was changed, the mood was changed. Uh, they wanted a bit more attitude. Uh, Sammy Hagar didn't particularly like doing that, but as we said, the Van Halens won out. Actually. I'm with them. I think this is a grown-up, moody, attitude-rich, very powerful song. I like it a lot. It's about Kurt Cobain, isn't it? And mm. suicide and the fact that if somebody had been there, um, yeah, if the if the love people had from him had been enough, he'd still be alive today. Yeah, this is a fantastic track, I think. <sighs> really, really strong. Really strong. <laughs> <laughs> Hagar's heart wasn't in this, and nor was mine. He said did that song. He liked the song. He said that didn't take us anywhere, and I know why now. It's obviously written later. He said it wasn't what Van Halen fans wanted. It showed the darkness of Van Halen, and it was basically the end of the band. That's his take on this one song alone. How about that? That's damning. Yeah, um, yeah I know, I know. Um, and I get that. It's too long for me. It's too dirgy. I, it's just, it's. It's it doesn't play to Hagar's strengths, I don't think, vocally. And it's it's Van Halen trying to trying to be alternative, you know, Eddie trying to be mature. And this is the band that gave us Ice Cream Man for fuck's sake. It's also you know it's <laughs> it's six minutes long. It's too long. It's not for me. This is this is this is Steve. I don't like it. Steve, Steve, people can change. People can change. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I, I don't mind Eddie wanting to grow up. Trust me. I just don't want yeah. him trying to do it in songs. <laughs> All right. So the last two tracks on side one are Amsterdam um, followed by Big Fat Money. I mean, let's talk about this as a pair because for me, it's a drop. I think Amsterdam really starts with Promise got a real groove but then i really don't like the wham bam chorus i think eddie said he regretted the shallow subject matter <laughs> yeah, started, started slagging off sammy hagar for his chorus in his new newfound sobriety he wanted to write deeper songs uh, but i mean amsterdam i can tolerate as being on on this album but big fat money i can't i mean it's a bit of rock and roll it's a long tour sally ripoff and I just think, why the hell did you include this track? Okay, well, dealing with the two of them, um, Amsterdam, yeah, it's about getting stoned on the most potent fucking weed that you can get in Amsterdam. It's called Amsterdam, isn't it? Well, first of all, let me say, this is one of the tracks that shouldn't be on this album because it is quite shallow. So I think you either, either you've got an album that you want, that, you know, 
is dealing with kind of quite serious stuff or yeah. has grown up. Yeah. And I don't know what Eddie Van Halen's talking about because I've I was listening to it, I was thinking, is it is that just coincidence or is that really clever? Right? Because one of the lyrics is score me some Panama red, right? And then it drops in to the biggest caricature of the Panama riff that you can possibly imagine. <laughs> so is it just really clever? And that it's almost like a little motif and a mm. little wink and an in-joke. Or is it just a coincidence? So Amsterdam, I quite like, shouldn't be there. Big fat money. You know how we talk about vocalists being dragged along by the hair? This is one of those. He cannot keep up. It's mm. an absolute dog's breakfast. And it is the it is my absolute low on the album. Mm. Well, that's interesting. I agree with you. I'm, I like the way you lumped them both together, Richard, because that's exactly how I felt when I, when I first heard it. Didn't like the first and don't like the second. Musically, I don't mind Amsterdam quite so much, but and I, don't, I don't mind. I disagree with what you say, Mark, about you know, it doesn't feel right for the album. I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be you know a, a serious album through and through, does it? It is Van Halen when all said and done. So I don't mind seeing the lighter side of them, but I love the fact that he said the lyrics weren't his, his, his words were metamorphical enough. Fucking metamorphical. A bloke who spent a decade working with Diamond Dave, by the way, now wants <laughs> now wants metamorphical. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, I don't like either. So I'm I'm absolutely with you on that. Yeah, and then as a, an afterthought, the uh, uh, the outside finishes with doing time, which is just a bit of percussion and uh, Alex Van Halen mucking around. And let's flip the album over. Five actual tracks, four proper songs. On side two, uh, starts with Aftershock, then this little strung out pointless interlude. Their ballad, Not Enough, Take Me Back, and uh, the album closes with a slightly longer, right, bit into what you two think, but I think a little bit of a mini epic in feeling. Right, Aftershock, yeah, another banger, Steve, eh? Top, top draw, yeah, love it. Um, one of the tracks of the album for me, as I said before, you know, love the bass line, love that dancing bass line through this. You know, you were so sorry Michael Anthony was sort of beating his bass up, but, you know, he's, he's making it sing here and um, doubtless to get a herd over the Van Halen boys. Um, there's a groove to this, isn't there? And it's meaty and it's beefy and it's, um, there's a solo. I love the solo over Anthony and Van and, and Alex are just driving it along and there's a solo over the top. Oh, great song, great start. Well, Sammy may have wanted to get out of his marriage to the Van Halen brothers, but he didn't want to get out of his own marriage, did he? Because this is the second track where he's, He's kind of um, lamenting the end of his union. This is great. Yeah, he got divorced in 94. This He's clearly preoccupied with it. Fabulous guitar work on it. And, you know, Eddie Van Halen, in every track, there's a moment where Eddie Van Halen goes, just in case you had forgotten who the governor is, <laughs> there's some lovely guitar work in it that just mm-hmm. underlines his genius and the fact that he is the governor in Van Halen. Not just Van Halen. The way he makes a guitar sound is yeah. like no one else on the planet. Oh, fantastic. This was the track you played me, Mark. Yeah, and I think I, it was. Yeah. And, and I went, oh, hello. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, well, let's skip past Strung Out, which is just, uh, well, just sounds like it's Eddie Van Halen trying to tune his said guitar and well, failing. It's- it's Eddie Van Halen in a rented house where there's a piano, destroying the piano, recording the sound of him destroying the piano, and then putting it on an album. That's what that is. Yeah, and Bruce yeah. Fairburn said yes. Yeah. I mean, 
I refer you to your earlier comments, sir. When you take on the Van Halen brothers, yeah, there's only yeah, going to yeah, be yeah, one yeah. winner. I thought Fairburn was bigger than that, you know? Yeah. Anyway, it's a shit thing to do. Well, Eddie Van Halen said he he welcomed Bruce Fairburn's yes. uh, involvement because it actually uh, challenged him and put him on edge a little bit. Exactly. And he said they get on they get on great. And he said he, he likes the drive. Yeah. But anyway, mm. this shouldn't have happened. All right. And then we get to Not Enough. So we have piano, we have soulful vocals, we have strings. It's a beautiful song. Yeah. But it, it, it's not fan hate. <laughs> but I've not... I've never given it a low score. It's not a high score. It's a it's a it's a really really nice proper grown up song. Oh, it's, an, it's an average ballad. It's got an average score. This is one of his fanboys, Steve Lukather's on here, isn't he? One of his old mates and one of those many many guitarists who thinks he's a legend, um, Eddie. And he played rhythm guitar on this, didn't he? I think very high score from me. I think this is one. Is it? Yeah. I think it's a beautiful song, and I don't think you can mark it down just because it's not Van Halen. I think it's just you mark it as it as the song it is, and it's a fantastic ballad. Yeah, average ballad, mm. average score. <laughs> I'll mark it accordingly. Thank you. <laughs> a bit like giving yourself away. <laughs> yeah. uh, last couple, the songs on the album. Uh, Take me back is the first of those, which is kind of I, I was trying to work out how would you describe this? Is this is kind of seventies rock, isn't it? Mm. Tom Petty, sort of middle of the road seventies rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I quite like it. It's got a really hooky chorus. Love the big ringing chords. I really like the two tracks that close this album. Uh, uh, Take me back, and even more so, feeling. Um, I, feeling is incredibly strong finish builds it falls i love the picking guitar hagar's phrasing again it's moody again it's quite assertive but then when it just kicks off i love it so yeah feeling is one of the songs of the album to me so i yeah really strong finish from these two for me moody's the word isn't it i mean it's it's you, you talked about the maturity it's melancholy isn't it i don't think i've this has to be the most sorrowful van halen album ever doesn't it i mean with the two yeah. chief protagonists clearly had issues and we're quite happy to sing about them and, and write them down because it's pretty mournful in places. Take me back is feeling again. I get that angst, you know, it, it's, it's there again. Eddie, he always said he loved the honesty of what sort of Nirvana and Alice in Chains and the like were doing lyrically and always claimed he wasn't bothered about them musically, didn't he? But um, let's be honest, the, the feeling that's uh, the Van Halen party's over. No, <laughs> the goofballs, <laughs> the goofballs have grown up because it's. Very on them, as you say, an epic. This is a band whose trademark was three and a half minutes. I quite, I quite like the pair of them. It's, it's not a bad end. I like both of them. I think, I think feeling is is or feeling is the track of the album for me. I just, okay. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I think he emotes beautifully on it. I just think that he gives Hagar particularly gives the performance of the album on it. I think that's a really strong finish. The other thing is that I think feeling is elevated by that kind of the counterpoint of those choral harmonies going on in it as well. So you kind of got that more. Mournfulness, mm. which because actually it's quite a hopeful. I think it's actually quite a hopeful song. Mm. The chorus is quite uplifting, but then it's got that sort of very bleak choral harmony uh, sitting in the verse, which I, I just think that works really well. I really like it as a song. Okay, so you're saying that would that be your high? What about your low, Mark? Yeah, that'd be my high. Uh, my low, big fat money, easy, easy. Yeah. Pick. Steve, I tell you what, it's a real cocktail of stuff, isn't it? My low. I mean, where do you start? <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. My low is my low. I'm sorry. My low is don't tell me what love can do. That is my low. And yeah, nothing's better than Seven Seal. Superstar. Great song. Big Fat Money's my low. And the high be split between, depending on what mood I'm in, don't tell me and feeling. Um, I think I'd give it to feeling just because of uh, it's, I think it really does sum up, you know, where they'd got to 
in terms of growing up, in terms of that maturity, in terms of that, you know, being more moody and I suppose adult. And it's a real pity that they, they couldn't take it any further. It does sound like a farewell as well, yeah. doesn't it, mm. that song? Yeah. I mean, Steve really did want us to uh, review uh, Van Halen with Gary Schroen, but uh, <laughs> pulled out of our uh, 1970 to 1995 criteria. Yeah, it's uh, all yeah. right, Steve, because we've got another three Van Hagos uh, albums to do before before we... So this isn't the end. You, no, you no, no, no. Listen, I'd rather listen to uh, I'd rather listen to 5150 than anything Gary Schroen did with Van Halen, put it that way. All right, so I hope you enjoyed those reviews of our three rediscovering the uh, delight of albums we perhaps overlooked. We listened to Born Again by Black Sabbath and uh, Rats Detonator and then Van Halen's Balance. What we now need to do is mark them and see track by track how they contribute and then where these albums end up in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. So we started um, with Black Sabbath's Born Again, uh, and that scored pretty well, actually. Steve, you gave it a 7.43 if we're rounding up. Richard, you gave it a 7.35, and I loved it. I gave it an 8.35, and it gets an average album score of 7.71429. Steve, we seem to be miles apart on Rack. Where are we on the scores? (laughs) Well, isn't that the most extraordinary thing? The whole kaleidoscope of views. Yeah, no agreement on anything. And there's three tenths between the three of us. You just you couldn't make it up. Um, Richard gave it seven. You gave it seven point one three. I gave it seven point three. How it's got to that, I do not know. Um, but the total score is seven point one four three three three. Richard Van Halen. Yeah, a bit more variety in our scores, and I was in the middle. Uh, I with a seven point five. Steve, you were pretty much half a point lower than me on a 6.94 and Mark was pretty much half a point higher on a 7.99. That gives Van Halen an overall score of yeah, just under 7.5 then 7.477. What have we got? We're, we're all kind of low low to high sevens um, so these aren't going to trouble the upper echelons of the Hall of Fame but let's go over there now and see where they end up. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. All right, so here we are in the Hall of Fame. We now have a grand total of 228 albums in there. Live at the Hammersmith Odeon by Nuclear Assault. Destroy the Machines by Earth Crisis still propping up the table. And we have to climb by, well... uh, Around 60 or so to 166 for the first of the three we selected for this episode. Rats Detonator. And they find themselves sandwiched between Marillion's Holidays in Eden and Praying Mantis with Time Tells No Lies. Uh, We climb about another 50 or so places uh, to 117 to find Van Halen's balance. And uh, that got an identical score to uh, Blackfoot's Strikes uh, that we looked at back in episode 15 but Van Halen due to a better top three track score gets uh, above strikes and it's slightly below balls to the wall by except and the winner of this episode and coming in in a very very respectable 69 uh, is born again by Black Sabbath that's a place above Bad Company's uh, self-titled debut and one place below South of Heaven by Slayer that's a surprise I mean I, I scored that lowest well first off we are saying that it is a much, much better album than people give them credit for. And we're saying by this that it's nearly as good an album as South of Heaven, gentlemen. Well, I think it's perfectly fitting 
that uh, Black Sabbath should be south of heaven. <laughs> that's that's really down to me, isn't it? So, I mean, yeah, my score was the outlier and it's it skewed it. Nevertheless, as you say, Rich, I think what, what we are saying is that, you know, those people who've written it off and maybe not revisited it in a while, maybe just sort of go back and give it another listen and, and yep. try and kind of not compare it to what went before. But yes, it's definitely, definitely a recommended. Yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't too bad for Rat, actually, given the conversation we had. I thought it'd be the other way. As soon as we announced the albums, I thought it'd be the other way around with Balance. I thought Detonator would be above Balance. That, that was my initial thought. But as the, the marks show that, don't they? What I would say is yeah. that we've done two Rat albums, Out of the Cellar, Detonator, and there's 137 places between the two of them. I rest my case, Mullud. Yeah, speaks <laughs> Yeah, right. So there you go. That's um, that's episode 76, three albums done, Into the Hall of Fame. We now need to put our minds to episode 77. We have randomly randomised, as we do, and we've come up with a theme for the next episode, which is the letter H. So the big reveal, boys, what are we doing? Richard? Well, I've just uh, gone for, in typical Sesame Street fashion, H is for here. Wish you were Oh, here. okay. Another Pink Floyd album, Steve. <laughs> How lucky are you? <laughs> <laughs> it's only five tracks. I can deal with that. I mean, I know they're fucking long, but I can deal with that. Yeah. Wish you were here. Excellent. Mark? Save me. Okay, well, I am going to save you, Steve, because um, I'm going back to 1982, but not Northern. So I'm going for a Canadian band who you may never have heard of. They're called Headpins, oh. and the album is called Turn It Up. Well, that's very interesting. I should be, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and no, I've kept it simple. I've gone for a band that begins with H. I thought that was the idea, but there you go. Um, and mine is Hurricane from 1988 and the album Over the Edge. So there you go. Bit of late 80s. Decent pop rock for you. You'll enjoy that. A bit. It'd be good if I could get the name of my album right, though. It's Turn It Loud, Not Turn It Up. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, there you go. That is the... That is uh, episode 76 done. 77 sorted. We'll see you next week. Thanks for your company. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.